0: It's a long way to Tipperary And welcome to History of the Great War, episode 130. This week, a big thank you goes out to everybody who visits the podcast website at historyofthegreatwar.com. Yes, we have a website, and I often put up cool photos, a source list for each episode, and a full transcript. So go check it out. I think it's cool. Last episode, we discussed the German submarine actions of 1916, and some of the technological changes that occurred during the war as it related to the U-boats and the British attempts to get them under control. This week we are solely focused on perhaps the most important event of the entire war at sea, and certainly the most important event related to the U-boats, and that is the decision made by Germany to begin an unrestricted submarine campaign in 1917. This campaign would see the Germans throw all of their available U-boats at the British and neutral shipping to try and take the British out of the war, and it would be the prototype of what would happen on a much lengthier scale in the Second World War. We will start off with a lengthy discussion of some of the discussions, meetings, and disagreements within the German government on the subject that led to the declaration of the campaign in early 1917. We will spend the last bit of this episode discussing what happened when the campaign began and some of its early consequences. Decisions like the ones made by the Germans in early 1917 to begin an unrestricted submarine campaign that would have negative consequences for their war effort were not made in a vacuum. There were civilian and military reasons behind their choices. As the war continued into its third year, the effects of German public opinion was one of these reasons. Around the country, German citizens were already on near-starvation rations, due to the blockade, and there was no longer any belief that the United States would use its power to do anything about it. The daily caloric intake for Germans was far below the amount required to maintain health, and civil mortality was already a third higher than before the war. The elderly and small children felt the effects of this hardship the worst, and tuberculosis cases almost doubled. People all over Germany began to demand action, and the only kind of action that the German military could provide was unrestricted U-boat operations. Around Germany, the U-boats would become a symbol of revenge, victory, and a way to end the war and the suffering it had caused. All of these factors played an immense, put an immense amount of pressure on the civilian government. That civilian government had long believed that it might be necessary to find a way, economically, to push Britain out of the war, or at least to greatly impede their war effort. To this end, the Admiralty had created Department B1, which had been staffed with some of the leaders of the German economy. Financial, industrial, commercial, and agrarian experts were all brought onto the team and they began to collect and analyze data on the British economy and trade. They were searching for vulnerabilities, and trying to determine just how vulnerable they were. An early target for this research was the British wheat supply, which was almost entirely import-based. Inside the German civilian government, the resistance to a new unrestricted campaign was led by Chancellor bethmann Hollweg. This opposition was not driven by any humanitarian concerns, but more practical issues that bethmann Hollweg believed might be the result of such a campaign. To put it simply, he did not believe that the U-boats would defeat the British, he did not believe that they could sink as much as they claimed, and even if they could, it would not have the results that the Navy liked to talk about. He also greatly feared the possibility of the United States officially entering the war, a fear that was waning in the minds of many other German leaders, since they believed that it was inevitable regardless of what actions the Germans took. Throughout nineteen sixteen, Bethman Holvig's opposition, joined by other members of the government like Foreign Minister Jagau and Ambassador von Bornstorff, who was in Washington at this time, was enough to keep the Navy at bay. He believed that the possibility of launching the campaign was strictly a political decision, and that the military should not play a role in that decision, saying that it was, quote, "...it directly affects our relations with neutral states, and thus represents an act of foreign policy, which I have the sole and untransferable responsibility." End quote. Most importantly in all of this, Bethmann Hollweg, at least for most of 1916, could count on the full support of the Kaiser, who had the ability to end any debate on the subject. Seeing into the future and what might happen, the chancellor decided to circulate a peace note near the end of 1916. We've bumped up against this note in our story a few times now. Uh, this was the one that Bethmann Hollweg sent out on December 12th, in which he asked all the countries to come together to begin negotiations for peace. The Entente, of course, rejected it out of hand. Later, President Wilson sent out a note to all parties, asking them to reveal their war aims so that hopefully the continent could move towards peace. Bethmann Hollweg and the others within the German government had been hoping for the United States to take a leading role in peace discussions. As it was, the Entente would never agree to reveal their war aims, because that would involve revealing the promises they had made to countries that that they had brought into the war, like Italy, Romania, and Japan. All of them promised large territorial acquisitions, which would require the destruction of the Austro-Hungarian and Ottoman Empires. Therefore, they just ignored Wilson's request. The Germans would then also ignore the request, since the military leadership and civilian leadership could not agree on what they would respond with anyway. Overall, bethmann Holweg and the rest of the German civilian government were disappointed once again by the United States, because they had hoped that Wilson and the Americans would use their power to be more forceful in the pursuit of peace. It might have been a false hope to begin with though, with Wilson favoring the Entente so frequently in the first two years of the war, but you know, they were still hoping. I have went into these two efforts in some detail, the German and then the American calls for peace because they actually played a role in the Declaration of Unrestricted Submarine Warfare. The Entente had rejected an offer to negotiate outright, without even attempting to move forward. It was apparent that the United States could no longer be counted on to play a role in the peace. This meant that there was now only one option. The war must be fought to its conclusion. The Germans must win. The survival of the nation depended on it. There was no longer any concept of going too far. While the political leadership of Germany was against the unrestricted campaign, the army also, at least for the moment, shared their opinion, albeit for different reasons. Ludendorff was concerned about the navy's proposals because he feared that if too many neutral ships were sunk, especially those from Holland and Denmark, they might enter the war. Their armies were not necessarily the most impressive in Europe, but just the sheer mileage of front that would have to be occupied would put a strain on a German army that was, by the end of 1916, at a breaking point. A timeline note here, these conversations were happening right around the time that Romania entered the war, meaning that Hindenburg and Ludendorff, who had just resumed overall command, were trying to scrape together enough troops to launch an attack against Romania. Other than maybe the last few months of 1918, this is quite possibly the worst moment in the entire war to have other European countries join in the war against Germany. They just did not have any more men to go around. This mindset would begin to change by the end of the year, though. During those last four months of 1916, the situation in the west and the east stabilized, the Battle of the Somme and Verdun came to an end, and Romania had its face kicked in by the Germans and Austrians. Because of these successes, the support for unrestricted submarine warfare began to rise in the German Army High Command. While the situation was in some ways far better in the short term, Ludendorff was also swayed to the side of the Navy by an appreciation of how bad the long-term prospects for Germany were at this point in the war. After surveying the situation in the West, Ludendorff believed that the German Army simply could not handle more attrition battles like those of 1916. The German army simply did not have the ability to endure the endless series of sieges in the west, they were just too costly, and so they would have to find a way to alter the balance of the situation, and the U-boats seemed like the only way. With the army leadership now on side, all that remained was for the navy to lay out its case to the civilian government, and then convince the Kaiser to support them. The biggest proponent of the campaign was the chief of the German naval staff, Admiral Henning von Hotzendorf. He would lay out his reasonings, his assumptions, and his goals in a memorandum that he published on December twenty-second, 1916, which would drive many of the conversations of the following month, which would eventually lead to the Germans starting their campaign. In this memo, which weighed in at something like 200 pages, he laid out a lengthy series of figures and charts detailing the situation in Britain and what the Germans needed to do to greatly affect it. The detail was impressive. The calculations included easy items, like how much grain the British needed, but also factors like prices, cargo space, freight rates, shipping insurance rates, and the amount of all of the various goods that the British had on hand. All of these were then used to calculate how badly an unrestricted campaign would hurt them. The key commodity was always wheat, which the Germans estimated the British could not overcome a shortage of. Holtzendorf estimated that the British had access to about 10.75 million tons of cargo space. Much of this cargo space was from neutral countries, about 3 million tons or so. And he believed that the unrestricted campaign would scare at least half of these neutral ships off the seas, since they would not be able to afford the loss rates and insurance rates that would go along with putting their ships on a sea with German submarines. Because of this, Holtzendorf claimed that all Germany needed to do was sink 600,000 tons of shipping a month for five months, and at that point the British would be forced to sue for peace. This was a much higher amount than the Germans were sinking under the more restrictive uh, rules of engagement in use at the time, and the only hope of reaching that 600,000 tons was a move to an unrestricted campaign. There were many bad assumptions in this memo, although most of them would only become apparent later. For example, while it was possible for the Germans to roughly hit that 600,000 tons a month marker, it would not be enough to force the British out of the war. The memo also completely disregarded any action from the British. The Germans clearly did not believe that the British would find an effective counter to the U-boats, and that they also believed that the counter would eventually be arrived at by the British. The convoying of ships together would actually be better for the U-boats than otherwise. In fairness to the German Navy, the British Navy also believed that convoying ships together would make the U-boat problem worse, a mindset that we'll dive into next episode. For now, though, Holtzendorf's plan seemed impressive, and Hindenburg and Ludendorff fully supported it by the end of the year. Holsendorff would also put a date on his proposal, writing that, quote, I have come to the conclusion that we must have recourse to unrestricted U-boat warfare, even at the risk of war with America, so long as the U-boat campaign is begun early enough to ensure peace before the next harvest, that is, before Oct- August 1st. This memorandum would be a key document when the German leaders would meet at the beginning of 1917 to discuss the reopening of their unrestricted campaign. A key part of all of these discussions was America. What would America do? Would she enter the war? Would she stay out? The British blockade had certainly already infringed on neutral rights, so that would not necessarily be the determining factor. But the blockade was not killing any Americans. The blockade also was not having much of an effect on the American economy, with the country raking in massive economic profits from the war, even without the ability to trade with Germany. The net gain in trade during the first three years of the war was almost $5 billion for American businesses. On the flip side of this, the unrestricted campaign by its very nature would be more threatening to American citizens and business interests. Ships would be sunk that were owned and operated by American businesses, American sailors would be killed or injured. This would then put the United States in an impossible situation and would probably lead to war. Many of the German leaders did not consider this a reason not to do the campaign, though. This was driven by the belief that the United States was going to enter the war anyway, and the general misconception that America would not be that problematic in the war anyway, and hopefully, if the U-Boat campaign was successful, the war would be over before they could play a part. The the Germans were in an impossible situation. There was no good answer. They just hoped that it would kind of work out. There were two meetings around the renewal of the U-Boat campaign. The first was at Pless on August 30th, 1916, which is where Holtzendorf began pushing for the campaign to to begin again. This would then lead to all of the discussions and memos that we've covered. Um, And then the second and more important was the meeting that took place on January 8th, 1917. At this meeting, Holtzendorf could count on the support of Ludendorff and Hindenburg. Ludendorff made his intentions clear when before the meeting he even took place, he sent a message to Bethmann Holvig saying that the new U-boat campaign was, quote, the only means of carrying the war to a rapid conclusion. The military position does not allow us to postpone, end quote. When the meeting started, Bethman Holvig found out quite quickly that he did not have the support to get the Kaiser to say no to the plan. The military leaders had been putting pressure on the Kaiser, and bethmann Holvig knew that if he forced the Kaiser to choose between himself and the military, Bethman Holvig would lose. Therefore, Bethman Holvig gave in by saying, quote, "...if the military authorities consider the U-boat war necessary, I am in no position to oppose them." End quote. Once the civilian opposition was out of the way, the process was quick and the order would go out from the Kaiser immediately quote, I order the unrestricted submarine campaign to begin on 1 February with the utmost energy. End quote. This would end up being a catastrophically bad mood for the Germans, but mainly for reasons that they did not know about at the time. At this point in January 1917, they did not know that in just two months the Russian government would fall, and by the end of the year the country would be effectively out of the war. They also could not know that the French army was close to collapse and the Neville offensive in the spring would almost break them. Finally, they could not know that in early 1917, the British, who had been basically funding the entire Entente war effort, were running out of cash. They had spent a lot of money in America since the war started, and in just a few months, they probably would have been unable to continue purchasing at the rate that they were in 1917, which would have severely crippled not just their war effort, but also that of their allies. This is a topic that we will dive deeper into in later episodes. The plan was for the U-boats to immediately begin engaging any ship that was obviously armed. The big change would not start until February the 1st, at which point any ship, even those that were not armed, even those of neutral nations, would be attacked without warning. The only exception would be obvious hospital ships, but even these humanitarian ships would not be completely exempt, with those in the English Channel being a target, due to the belief that they were being used to ferry troops to the continent. Even obvious passenger liners and ships of the Belgian relief effort were only given a single week to reach port before they would be attacked. The campaign would not be officially announced until the evening of January 31st, just a day before it began. At ten minutes after four in the afternoon on January 31st, German Ambassador Bernstorff arrived at the office of United States Secretary of State Lansing. He informed Lansing that unrestricted submarine warfare would begin at midnight. For the previous two weeks, Bernsdorf had known that this was coming, and he had tried everything in his power to change it. On January 16th, he had written to Lansing, who then forwarded the message to the president. Bernsdorf had written, quote, We have modified submarine warfare, waged in retaliation against illegal English starvation policy to meet American wishes. In return, we expected the U.S. government would contend with us for freedom of the seas and obtain from England re-establishment of legitimate neutral trade with Germany. England has conceded nothing, but instead boasts of more and more success in strangling Germany. We therefore may expect and should be grateful if America at last takes energetic steps to establish real freedom of sea." Quote. When this message went unanswered, there was simply nothing that the ambassador could do. After reading the official note on January 31st, Bernstorff would say, quote, "'I know this is very serious, very, and I deeply regret that it is necessary.' To which Lansing replied, "'I believe you do regret it, for you know what the result will be, but I am not blaming you personally.'" For all the nations in the war, when they learned of the German Declaration, they believed that it was a certainty that the United States would enter the war— In Germany, the population was filled with hope that this move by their government, even if news of the new campaign was followed quickly by news that the United States had broken all diplomatic ties, would bring the war to the end quickly. In America, President Woodrow Wilson still hoped that the United States could stay out of the war. It had only been a few weeks since Wilson had given his famous Peace Without Victory speech, where he hoped that all of the belligerent countries could come together to form a lasting peace. Even after the announcement of the U-Boat campaign, Wilson would continue to push to keep the United States neutral, and in position to be a policymaker. However, this view was not shared by the other members of his government, and their push for war became too strong. On February 3rd, he ordered that the German ambassador be given his passports, and he be sent back to Germany, and he recalled the American ambassador in Berlin. This severed all diplomatic ties with Germany, and the only remaining step was to declare war. But this step was not taken immediately. For the next month and a half, the situation remained mostly static. There seemed to be the possibility that the German campaign would not drive the United States into the war, and in fact, American public opinion was mixed on the topic. Wilson seemed to be waiting for the public to make up its mind. In the East, there was a lot of support for the war, while in the other regions of the country's opinions were more mixed. The momentum of the war was just unavoidable, though, and on April 6th, the country would be at war. Yes, I skipped a lot of information between February 3rd and April 6th, but don't worry, in just a few weeks, we will take the time to tell the full story of how and why America entered the war. But before we get to that story, we need to get back to the topic of these episodes. The Germans had declared unrestricted submarine warfare and unleashed their fearsome fleet of U-boats. So what happened next? Next. Well, at first, the results were slow in coming. It took time to get the U-boats to sea and for their captains and crews to adjust to the new rules' of engagement. There was also a change in how the U-boats were positioned in the seas. The longest U-boat missions were around four to six weeks. During that time, the goal of every U-boat was to find enough ships to use all of their torpedoes. To try and maximize the amount of time that the U-boats were in their best hunting grounds of the Atlantic, the Germans changed their travel routes so that instead of going around Scotland, the U-boats took a more direct but more dangerous route through the English Channel. It cut six days worth of travel time off each U-boat sortie, a pretty hefty percentage of time that they were at sea, and the British defenses in the Channel proved to be far easier to bypass than expected. When this was combined with an absolute minimum amount of time spent in port, with maintenance and crew leave reduced as much as possible, it allowed the Germans to have far more subs on patrol at a given time than at any previous point in the war. By having so many U-boats in the proper hunting grounds, the tonnage sent to the bottom of the ocean rose in February to 500 tons, about 50% more than the month before. In March, this number rose to 565,000 tons. In April, it would reach a staggering 860,000 tons. This month, April 1917, would be the greatest month for the U-boats ever, in either war, with the second largest month, November of 1942, coming at a distant second with 730,000 tons. This came at a cost, though, and in May, the number number dipped all the way back down to 600,000 tons. This is because the Germans simply ran out of steam. The effort in April had only been possible by pushing the men and their machines to their absolute limit. In May, some of the subs had to be laid up for repairs, some of their crews had to be rested. I'm not saying that in any way to reduce or minimize their accomplishments in April, though. The 860,000 tons were far above even the most optimistic German estimates, and far above what they thought was necessary for the campaign to be a success. It would unfortunately, for the U-boats anyway, be all downhill from there. Of course, it was not the numbers that actually mattered. What mattered was the effect that those numbers had on the British. The first mistake by the British was the belief that their defenses against moving U-boats through the Channel was impenetrable. This defense was called the Dover Barrage. In fact, the U-boats found very little threat from these defenses, and while they had to stay submerged during their journey through the Channel, they were rarely in danger. The greatest threat for the British lay in the Western Approaches, which was the area between Land's End, the Irish coast, and the Bay of Biscay. Churchill would call this area, quote, a veritable cemetery of British shipping, end quote. After the start of the campaign, Sir Joseph Mackley, the controller of shipping, would say that, quote, statistics prove that what are called areas of concentration, i.e., the convergence of trade routes, has as now managed, have become veritable death traps for our merchant marine, and our men are realizing this," End quote. The first months of the unrestricted campaign would cost the British 1.9 million tons of shipping, and while this would make things difficult in Britain for a while, they would not be in serious danger of being forced from the war, at least in the short term. After those first three months, the British would also begin to respond, which is where we will take up our story next episode, as the unrestricted campaign comes to a climax as the Americans enter the war, the British first refuse and then embrace the convoy system, and the Germans learn the simple fact that they do not have enough U-boats. Thank you for listening, and join me next episode.